Good morning. Today we turn our attention to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing to this struggling group of Christ followers because they were trying to figure out how to live their new life in Christ in the middle of the wild and crazy, anything goes, highly sexualized atmosphere of the ancient Roman Empire. We're going to spend two weeks in chapter 7 because it's just so full. This week we're going to focus in on singleness, and next week will be like a mini marriage seminar. I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and then skipping down to verses 25 to 35 if you'd like to follow along. So please, It's a little long, so please bear with me. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and only for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession and not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. And now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm dropping down to verse 25 now. Now about young women who have not yet married. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a young woman marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided attention to the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for this is his holy word. When I was in college, I had this big old 1962 Plymouth Belvedere station wagon. And one Sunday or one day, one weekend, I was going back to my college campus and I had about seven or eight of my fraternity brothers in the back of this big station wagon. It was the kind that had the, the flip-up rear seat that was faced backwards. You remember that, some of you? It was big as a boat, made of solid steel. Uh, we were driving on a two-lane country road in southern Indiana. There, were, uh, there was a drainage ditch on one side of the road and cornfields, and then on the other side of the road was just a narrow uh, uh, shoulder. Uh, 
I was going the speed limit, and there wasn't much traffic, but an early morning thunderstorm had kind of just dumped a lot of water on the road, and it was covered with puddles. Up ahead, I saw a big puddle in the road and thought nothing of it until, bam, my front tire hit that thing, and it was not a puddle at all. It was the mother of all potholes. The rain had washed out a huge hole in the road and filled it to the brim so with water so that you couldn't tell that it was actually a puddle. It just looked like a puddle. My front tire hit that hole full speed. The car swerved violently to the right and headed straight for the drainage ditch. Instinctively, of course, I jerked the wheel the opposite direction to the left to keep the road, car on the road as it skidded. But when the tires hit dry pavement, the car spun the opposite way. And we went sliding sideways right down the middle of the road into oncoming traffic. I vividly remember seeing cars going on both the left and the right side of me as we were skidding down the road. It was only through God's protection that we spun around a couple of times and then stopped uh, safely on the opposite side of the road going the right direction for them. I made a common mistake in a skid. I overcorrected. In life, when faced with big problems, there's a tendency to overcorrect. We go too far in the opposite direction, and then we end up creating even more problems. We overcorrect. And that's what we see happening in today's passage. The Corinthians were overcorrecting. You know, Paul is responding to specific questions that the Corinthian Christians had sent to him. Questions that showed their confusion about how to live for Christ. And we've already seen in the first six chapters that problems of sexuality really threatened to ruin this church. And in response to this struggle, some Christian believers, were they were trying to do the right thing, but they overcorrected. In an attempt to deal with the problems of extreme sexual immorality, they let the pendulum swing all the way to the other extreme. They began to believe and to teach that anything related to the body was unholy. And therefore, all sex was bad. All sex was dirty or profane, even within marriage. This subgroup taught that true Christians should only be concerned, you know, about spiritual things. That physical desire or physical pleasure of any kind were earthly and, and therefore should be avoided at all costs. Christians, they said, should be kind of detached from the physical world and be strictly devoted to the spiritual world. Verse 1 says, Now about the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's important to see here that Paul is quoting their question. He is not making a statement for himself. It's like how students might formulate an issue in a debate class. Paul states the question that's going to be debated. Resolved, it is good for a man not to marry. One side debates in favor of that statement. The other side debates against it. That's the issue, not Paul's solution. So one vo vocal group was saying that anything physical was kind of second rate, that, that sex, even within marriage, was not the best. And if you really wanted to please God, you had to remain single. They elevated celibacy as a virtue, even above marriage, because they thought the whole physical side of life was shameful or unclean. And unfortunately, that attitude has hounded the church for centuries, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. It's one of the main differences between Protestant and Roman Catholic church clergy. Protestant clergy can marry, and we don't view celibacy as some greater virtue than marriage. In this passage, Paul attempts to correct their confusion and is calling for a balance in life. Balance. He wants people to find contentment and purpose, whether they're married or they're single. The key phrase in this whole chapter is in verse 7. 
where he summarizes his arguments by saying simply, each of you has your own gift from God. Whether you're married or single, both situations are equally a gift from God. One way to help us understand what's going on here is to remember that the Greek language had a wider variety of words to describe things like love. There are four Greek words, that main words, that we translate as love, and each word describes kind of a different aspect of human bonding. If you've, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, I'd highly recommend it because it fully explains the meaning and the interplay of these four words. Quickly, the first kind of love is agape, which is the highest kind of love. Selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love. Agape is the kind of love God has for us, the kind of love Christ demonstrated for us when he died on the cross. It's the way Christ loves his church, and that's why the relationship between Christ and the church is often described in Scripture as a marriage, with Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. Ideally, marriage is to try to mirror this kind of agape love between Christ and his church. Sacrificial love. The second word for love is philia which simply means friendship, that powerful bond between very close friends. That's why Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. That's what its name means, literally. Philia is love and Adelphos is brothers. I'm not sure that's always true, but that's the name. Philia is friendship, but not just casual friends, but the heart and soul kinds of friendships that are established over many years. The third kind of love is eros, which means romantic or physical love. It's the root word for the English word uh, uh, erotic. But eros is not, isn't strictly just physical passion. It's the whole feeling of, of romance and attraction. C.S. Lewis notes that there's a difference between the world's view of eros and the Christian view. He described it as the distinction between wanting a woman and wanting one particular woman. Godly eros is a good thing. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to godly, positive, physical intimacy, the Song of Solomon. Of course, eros is easily distorted, but the physical side of married love is part of God's good creation. The fourth kind of love is storge, which is family love. These are the relationships you don't choose. You're, you don't choose your parents, you don't choose your cousins, you don't choose your siblings. Storge is that bond of affection that exists in healthy families. It's that intimate circle of family that often forms our core identity and in fact sets us on our path in exploring the other three kinds of love. Storge, family love, sets the tone on how we form friendships, how we pursue romance, and especially our ability to love unconditionally agape style. The problem this group of Christians had was with Eros. They just couldn't see how romance and passion fit into their very narrow view of godly relationships, so they thought it should be eliminated, even between married couples. Paul just fights against that attitude right away. In verses 3 through 5, Paul tells the Corinthians they are wrong to withhold physical intimacy within marriage as though that was a more spiritual way to live. That's not God's plan. And Paul said, it's not smart. All that's going to do is amp up alienation between husband and wife, open the door to temptation, and possibly the breakdown of the relationship. Mutual intimacy is what marriage is all about. Paul's message is very clear to the married couples. Don't deprive each other of physical intimacy. There may be times to refrain, but only with the two conditions that he mentions. It must be by mutual consent, and it should only be for a short time. 
But let's fast forward to today. Our problem is the total opposite of what Paul was facing. Today, our culture would say, you can't live without eros. That sexual expression isn't just your right, but there's something wrong with you if you're not out there sleeping around. And if you restrict eros to the context of one man, one woman marriage, well, that's repressive and, and too restrictive. Single people, people who are separated from their spouse, everyone should be free to engage physically with others because, hey, that's the way God made you, right? That's it. God gave you those impulses, so they must be okay, right? Even in the Christian world, we hear this type of illogic. That people should be free to indulge in whatever impulses or relationships they have as long as there is some little kernel of love, however faint, behind it. This love ethic that we hear so much about. So the pendulum has swung all the way back again from the Corinthian open sex society to the confused Christians who said no sex at all, even in marriage. Today when people, even in the church, say there's something wrong with you if you're not engaged in eros, regardless of your marital status. We have completely lost all sense of what it means to be single and celibate as a gift from God. Paul values and sees special value in singleness and celibacy. First, Paul and all his contemporaries all believed that Jesus was coming again very soon. They expected the imminent second coming of Christ. They thought it was right around the corner. So they had this real sense of urgency in spreading the gospel. Persecution was already happening. The, the small-scale regional persecutions, those had mushroomed now into an empire-wide persecution under the brutal dictatorship of the emperor Nero. So Christians thought the end is, is just around the corner. And so they weren't thinking about raising families and sending kids to college or building better communities or worrying about what kind of legacy they were going to leave to their grandchildren. In verse 26, Paul explains his feelings with this caveat. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. Because of the crisis, because of persecution, because Jesus is coming quickly, put a freeze on everything else. Accept telling people about Jesus. Stay in your same condition. If single, don't seek marriage. If married, don't seek to get out of marriage. Stay as you are so that you can focus your attention on the things of the Lord. John Calvin wrote about this passage, when the high seas are raging, it's no time to be changing ships. Paul prefers singleness so that he can be unencumbered and give full concentration to proclaiming the gospel. Paul believed that for him, it was best to be single. You see, Paul was married at one time. Before his conversion to Christ, Paul was an Orthodox Jewish Pharisee. And one of the requirements to be a Pharisee was that you had to be married. But now he's single and he could have been a widower or his Jewish wife may have left him when he converted to Christ. We don't know how the change happened. But Paul is now a single man. And in his position as an apostle, you know, who traveled all the time facing all the hardships that he had, it would have been almost impossible for him to maintain a marriage. But though he was single... Paul always maintained his very positive view of marriage. He wrote to his young disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as though with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. We're going to talk about that next week, or in two weeks which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. 
everything God created is good, and nothing to, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it has been concentrated or consecrated by the word of God and prayer. You see, Paul strongly states that marriage should not be forbidden or restricted. But as a single man, he sees his singleness as an asset, not a liability. There are advantages to being unencumbered. It frees the single person to explore all that God has for them right now. Paul would say if you're single, you shouldn't be pining away about getting married at some future time because you might be missing all the ways God wants to be at work in your life right now. Paul's advice is to live your life to the fullest right now with God. See how God wants to use you right now. Make that your focus, and if marriage is part of God's plan for you, it's going to happen. Dr. Preston Sprinkle writes that the church, you know, unfortunately can be a tough place for single people. Most Christians don't realize it unless you are single, but if you step back and look at the Christian culture, you'll see that we do tend to elevate marriage. In some cases, we even idolize it. The not-so-subtle message communicated by many churches, and sometimes ours, I think is that if you're single, there must be something wrong with you, that you should be married by now. The message is usually unintended, but I think the single people hear it loud and clear, that somehow you're incomplete until you get married and have at least two kids. But if you have more than four kids, then people think you're weird again. That, that's just the way it works. The fact is, marriage is actually a small blip in our existence. We are all born single, and we're all call, call, called to steward our singleness for the first 20 or 30 or more years of our life. Many people will be called out of singleness and into marriage, and then called to steward their marriage to the glory of God. But us married folks will all be single again in this life, whether through divorce or through the death of our spouse. And we'll spell spend eternity with God as single persons, once again, because Jesus told us there is no marriage in heaven. Some Christians have bought into the cultural narrative that you can't really thrive unless you're married and having lots of sex. The Bible just doesn't teach that. People can live without sex, but we can't live without love and without intimacy. And there is a difference. Human flourishing doesn't depend on marriage, and it certainly does not depend on sex. Marriage brings with it its own temptations and trials and frustrations and other problems that married people sometimes don't want to admit. To think that marriage will end your loneliness or take care of all your sexual frustrations or your life problems, that's a myth. Many married people wish they weren't. And most of the people who struggle with sexual addictions or compulsive online habits, they're married. The fact is, is that we are relationally and sexually messed up whether we're in marriage or not. And marriage by itself is not going to fix that. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can, the one who was single, and the embodiment of human flourishing and joy. Owen Strachan writes that we need to see singleness as a gift from God and reject the idea that somehow being single means that you're, you're consigned to a life without joy or companionship or happiness. It is true that singleness and celibacy is a difficult road. But being married is also a rough road. The good news is that Christ just doesn't minister to us poor sinners. He sets the example for us. The argument that biblically faithful Christian singles somehow lead a substandard existence, it really denies Christ's own model. Jesus did not marry. He did not father children. Jesus lay by himself at night. He had no anniversaries to remember. 
If ever a single person feels strange, <coughs> excuse me, for being unmarried, they should know that Jesus lived that same life. The life of Christ was not easy, but he was the most fulfilled person who ever lived. He created a close circle of disciples. He poured out his life for the needy and the desperate. He had deep friends. By his blood, he created a forever family, the church, so that all who come to him for salvation would never be alone, that they join a community that stretches across every barrier. Jesus knew storge, family love. Jesus knew, knew philia, the love of good friends. And he knew agape, the unconditional love of God. Jesus, a single man, tasted the greatest love that there is, the love of the Father. And that was more than enough. If Jesus, the Son of God, could live all his days as a single person, we know that such a life must indeed be blessed by God. Each of you has your own gift from God, Paul says, whether married or single. So live fully into the gift that God has given you. Pursue all that Christ has for you right now. If you're married, make your marriage the best that it can be. But if you're single, can you thank God for your present singleness and get in step with how Christ wants to shine through your life right now? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these issues of relationships are so complicated in our day. And they were complicated back in the days of the New Testament. Lord, people have not changed at all. The pressures shift around a little bit. But Lord, we're still struggling with how do we have godly relationships in a way that are glorifying to you and also fulfilling to us. So whether we're married or we're single, Lord, we need to find first and foremost the love that you have for us as the starting point. Help us just to go deep into you, Lord, whether we're married or single, and to really thank you for the gift that you have given to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.